Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books and Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Um, I'm Raditya, your host for this episode, and today we are joined by Dr. David Wise, um, which is currently assistant professor at Kyushu University to talk about his latest um, monograph, The Gods Susano and Korea in Japan's Cultural Memory, Ancient Myths and Modern Empire. Uh, before we get into the book, perhaps we can start with a short self-introduction, um, David, um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work. Sure. Um, hi, Raditya, and thank you very much for having me here on your podcast. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, my name is David Weiss. Um, I am working as an assistant professor at Kyushu University at the moment. Um, I earned my um, degree um, in Germany at the University of Tübingen, and the major research um areas or questions um, that interest me are first of all um, cultural memory so the idea of um, how images of the past are created and how they change um, in different periods um, in accordance to historical or social changes and how these images of the past play an important role in constructing or maintaining collective identities. And of course, this is also closely connected to um, the idea of mythology and of myths. So origin stories um, and how these origin stories are reinterpreted in different um, periods and how they are used also in a political way for justifying or legitimating um, current practices. Um, so this is one of my uh, major research interests. Um, the other one is um, perceptions of cultural others. So um, I'm very interested in uh, Japanese or in the history of Japanese-Korean relations and how perceptions of Korea and Koreans uh, changed um, within Japanese intellectual history and what role Korea played in um, creating a Japanese um, cultural identity. Um, so I always have problems of um, focusing on one specific period because I'm very much interested in these long-term um, processes of reception and um, well, seeing basically the changes and how, how things are reinterpreted. Um, Yes, so um, I guess that's um, the most important points about my research. Great, yeah, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> and thank you for getting straight into the, the sort of cultural memory point. That was actually um, one of the questions I'll be asked, um, King Yu, soon. But maybe we can go back to that point um, later. Um, yeah, so I mean, the, the book sort of explores the association of, of sort of this deity, Susano, with Korea, um, and as I've mentioned, throughout various time periods. Um, but I do feel like there seems to be a, a bit of a, a focus given to especially the colonial period. But again, maybe we can touch um, a bit more on this later. Um, a, a fascinating topic in, indeed. But before we sort of jump into the book, um, and you've mentioned this a bit um, earlier, but maybe you can share some of the sort of processes that led to the um, sort of the start of this project. How, how did this sort of um, project begin? So, um, first of all, it basically started with my fascination for really this figure, this mythical figure, Susano. Um, I first encountered him uh, during my undergrad stud studies um, in a seminar on um, Japanese ancient history and intellectual history. Um, and I was just fascinated by this um, god. So he's depicted as uh, the little brother of the sun goddess. And this sun goddess Amaterasu is basically this very perfect um, goddess who um, 
never really makes any mistakes and is, is just uh, very dignified. Um, and then you have her, her little brother who is, is just a never-do-well. So he breaks all of the taboos. Um, and while it is very clear that Amaterasu played a, a very political role as well um, as the ancestress of the imperial family, um, I was always wondering um, why would you leave uh, a figure like Susan O, who clearly defies all authority, also imperial um, authority, in a mythical chrono chronicle? That's basically it's it's basically a or it's it, there are two chronicles that are very important in this regard, which are the Kochiki and the Nihonshoki. And both of them were compiled in the early 8th century at the, the imperial court. So both of them clearly have the, uh, as their major um, objective to justify imperial rule. So why would you leave uh, a figure in there that is, has a very important role and clearly defies imperial authority? So that's basically how um, my fascination with, with uh, Susano started. And then um, later on, um, as I also got interested in um, Japanese-Korean um, um, relations, um, I came upon these modern interpretations uh, that connected Susano Oh very strongly with Korea. And of course, here my, my two major um, research interests of uh, basically images of the alien and images of the past um, more or less coalesced. Uh, so it was for me a rather clear, um, um, yeah, uh, aim to, to work um, on, on this topic. And uh, then I just wanted to find out um, how Susan Oh is actually um, connected to Korea. So in the first step, I was very much interested in, um, let's say, mythical motifs that moved from the Korean peninsula to Japan and can be found in the in the ancient myths. Uh, but later on, I got more and more interested in the in the reception of all of this um, and how. Um, basically images of um, Korea were connected to this um, liminal and um, unpredictable figure. And so basically the back and forth between those images of Susano Oh and um, of Korea. Yeah, and um, yes, as you, you. As you okay, pointed yeah. out... Yeah, yeah. Uh, as you pointed out, there is definitely a, a certain focus on the colonial period, um, which is just because um, this is the period where it, uh, it becomes clearest that Susano O very much serves as a foil to Amaterasu. So there was this uh, theory of, of um, common ancestry of Japanese and Koreans, and um, which said that basically... Um, the, the Japanese and the Koreans are one uh, ethnic group uh, or had been in the past and therefore they should be rejoined, which was of course used uh, to justify um, colonial rule. And um, in this um, discourse, um, Amaterasu was considered as the ancestress of the Japanese people and Susan Oh um, as the ancestor of the Korean people. Um, so this was a very nice um, place to to basically start off um, the whole discussion. And then um, I tried to um, frame the whole book as uh, basically a genealogy. So how, how did it come to this? Uh, why, where did this discourse come from? Um, yeah, definitely. Very, very interesting. I mean, the, this, this sort of figure, Susano, I think, if you're somewhat familiar with sort of the the myths, you've you've heard the name, but yeah, I mean, you know, taking a closer look at sort of this deity, and then especially if you contrast him with sort of Amaterasu, sort of coming from my own interest more in sort of the the sort of popular cultural realm, it it is interesting because you do see this figure, you know, sort of taking more of a sort of backstage approach, even in sort of various um, sort of reinterpretations of him in popular culture compared to like um, Amaterasu. Um, but yeah, um, thank you, thank you, sort of for the, sort of that explanation. Um, and I mean, I guess you've you've touched on this before as well. But the the book is basically divided into two main parts, and, and the first part is sort of more focused on sort of the myths surrounding um, sort of this this sort of deity Susano, sort of looking at Yonchoki and sort of Kojiki. And then the second part um, 
is sort of where you explore um, later sort of interpretations um, or reinterpretations of Susanoo um, in Imperial Japan. Um, and I mean, I think the structure makes a lot of sense and this makes the book a lot easier to read. Um, but how did you sort of come up with this structure and, and is there sort of a particular reason or like a, a goal that you have in mind um, by sort of choosing to split the book into sort of these two parts? That is an excellent question um, because um, I have to admit that I, I struggled with this uh, for quite some years um, because this, this book is based on my PhD thesis and uh, the structure of my PhD thesis was completely different um, and it didn't work uh, the, because um, if you look at something for such uh, a long or over such a long time range, um, it is important to somehow um, define the, the red thread, basically what you want to show. And um, so what I ended up doing for this book is uh, focusing very much on the, on the reception history and you could say the first so that's that's basically the second part so the second part tells you how um susano o and his connection to um the korean peninsula was um reinterpreted in in different uh, periods um and also the idea behind um this uh, structure is that there is some kind of continuity. So if you look at um, theoretical concepts like um, the invention of tradition, um, you can easily get the impression that a lot of um, traditions were just invented from scratch in the modern period, which is not true. Um, you always have to build on something that is already there. So it's always a selection from... from um, basically, um, yes, you could say historical antecedents. And uh, the second part is supposed to show um, what the intellectuals in the Meiji period who tried to use Susano-o in order to justify um, colonial rule, what they could draw on, actually. So what were the, the primary sources they could, could use, but also what were the pre-existing um, interpretations they could use? Because um, this really limits the, the scope of, of um, possible interpretations, I would say. So if you came up with something completely new, um, just nobody would believe you. And... Um, but first, um, in order to, for this second part to make any sense, um, I had to um, explain the whole argument um, in, the, in the first part. So here I tried to first show a very rough sketch of um, Japanese images of Korea and how they changed um, over history, of course, with a special focus on the Meiji period. And uh, then to introduce uh, this figure of Susanoo, again with a special focus on his relationship to Amaterasu, this, con this very, um, uh, yes, contrasting um, relationship between the two. Um, and then um, this idea of, of Susanoo as a liminal character, um, because I think this is also this is what sets him apart basically from, from Amaterasu, um, who is a very stable character, um, doesn't move around a lot, and you know very much um, what she will do next. So she's, she's very predictable. Um, and on the other hand, Susanoo basically travels through all the mythical realms um, of this uh, mythical cosmos, and uh, you never know what he will do next, so he can... Um, break taboos and make things that don't really seem to make any sense. And in the next moment, he will be the great hero who um, defeats a dragon and saves uh, saves a maiden in distress. Um, so um, I basically uh, wanted to, to introduce this um, in the first part and then also already hint at how this was used in the, in the colonial period. And then, so to speak, the second part is the historical background that leads up to it. 
so yes, it, it took a long time to come up with that structure, but um, by now I'm rather happy with it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, interesting. Okay, um, so to go back to sort of this idea of uh, cultural memory, um, which is, is definitely central to sort of the, the book, um, can you maybe explain a bit more um, on, on sort of what cultural memory is and, and how specifically how, how sort of this concept sort of applies to Susanna or sort of to, to, to myths um, in, in sort of general or in your research? Mm -hmm. So the, um, the concept of cultural memory is, is rather broad. Uh, so it was framed by Aleida and Jan Asman, who are two um, German researchers with, with very different um, specializations, actually. So um, Jan Asman works on ancient Egyptology and Aleida Asman on modern literature, and they are married. Um, so um, this all already um, explains why this is a very interdisciplinary approach. And um, it's basically um, concerned with the idea of how elites um, create and structure an image of the past that helps to make sense of the present, to, to justify um, institutions as they are at the moment, um, and how uh, this image of the past has to be anchored in, in basically each individual's memory. Um, and in order to do that, um, you have to come up with um, uh, for instance, uh, well, you have to come up with education. So, so tell tell people uh, what is important about the past, how they th should think about the past. You can build statues, uh, you can build museums, um, just to um, make sure that everyone um, encounters these images of the past again and again, and basically interpret their own lives also and their own um, idea of belonging. Um, according to these images of the past. And um, obviously, this is not a modern phenomenon, um, but this was always done even um, in, in pre-literate times. Um, there were rituals um, that were repeated again and again. Um, normally, you have religious rituals that are connected to, to certain um, seasons. Um, and often these religious rituals are not directly connected to the natural um, changes uh, that happen during these seasons, but are also connected to some historical event, to some founding memory um, of a religion. Um, and to bring it back to, to Susano O and uh, my own uh, research, Obviously, these um, chronicles, um, Kochiki and Nihonshoki. So the Kochiki is the oldest extant um, piece of literature uh, we have um, in Japan. Um, they were um, ordered by the imperial court. And especially in the, in the preface of the Kochiki, there's a very clear um, explanation of the goal um, of, of this um, compilation or, or also standardization of mythology, um, which basically says that um, it is important to hand on the right, Im the right um, ideas of, about the past um, in order to make the government work and to make people understand uh, imperial rule. Um, and for that, it is also important to weed out uh, all the wrong uh, things that have crept into, into um, basically collective memory. Um, so already in the 8th century, um, we see in Japan a very clear um, understanding uh, from the imperial court that they need to control the past in, in order to justify their, their rule in the present. Um, of course, this was not only the chronicles, this was also backed up by, by court ritual and, and by many other um, also more political uh, reforms. Um, but then basically this is uh, 
something you can see throughout uh, Japanese intellectual history, at least until the end of uh, the Second World War, that the myths were always interpreted uh, by intellectuals and were always connected to to um, to the present and to, to present political um, developments, uh, also to religious developments. Um, yes, you could argue that they have become much less important um, after the end of uh, World War II. Um, but um, they definitely play a very important role in, in Japan's cultural memory um, from the earliest sources we have until um, the modern period. Yeah, um, interesting. Uh, sort of when, when I sort of I was reading on, on sort of um, this concept as well, it, it's certainly interesting to think about because it sort of it, it encourages the idea that you know traditions, um, meds, practices, as as something more that's just you know that we shouldn't take that for granted. Right? As in, like there, there's often a sort of political um, attempt, sort of political motif, but also a specific purpose behind. Um, well, these myths, right? They're not just there as a sort of narrative stories. Um, but yeah, uh, def definitely sort of been sort of an interesting concept, and I can see why it's sort of very applicable to sort of this um, this topic as well to sort of to sort of Susan at all. Um, so in in chapter one, uh, you sort of discuss various images of sort of Korea um, and uh, the Japanese cultural imagination um, in the various time periods as well. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit a little bit more on this? Um, what are some of the main perceptions of Korea and where some of the texts where we can sort of look at these sort of um, images of Korea. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. So um, basically, the the first um, images um, we know of um, appear in in these ancient sources in the Kochiki and the Nihonshoki, and the perhaps the most dominant one, at least in the in the early parts of these chronicles is that um, Korea is uh, basically a land of, of riches. So there are a lot of um, passages that um, refer to, to Korea as, as a land where there is a lot of gold and, and jewels. Um, and of course, um, you also have, so, so the, the most uh, famous uh, episode is, is probably uh, leading up to um, the legend of Chingu Kogo's conquest um, of, of Korea, um, where basically her her husband, the Emperor Chuai, um, gets uh, an oracle from, from some deities uh, that tell him to, um, to go to Korea and get the, the great treasures there. And he basically says, I, I cannot see something beyond the sea, so Korea doesn't exist, and he doesn't uh, basically believe in the oracle and dies uh, shortly afterward. And then um, Chingu Kogo, his, his wife, takes takes um, up uh, this role. And basically, so here we, we already see this, this idea that um, Japan wants to get treasures from Korea. Um, and this this uh, reappears um, at, at some time uh, at some points um, in the in the chronicle. Um, then you also, um, of course, have depictions of um, Korea. Um, perhaps one one has to differentiate a little bit. Um, obviously, there were were, were more than one uh, kingdoms um, on the Korean Peninsula, and um, Japan had very close connections to. Um, two of them, uh, to um, Pekche and uh, Kaya, the Kaya Federation, which was not really one of the kingdoms, but yeah, a federation of, of different states. And for instance, there, there is a very long episode on how Buddhism uh, was, was um, brought to Japan uh, from Pekche. Um, so here we have this very, very positive image of um, Korea as a, as a very prosperous land um, with an advanced civilization. Um, on the other hand, um, we also have the idea that um, Korea can be a threat to um, Japanese uh, security. So, um, 
for instance, um, the, the Yamato state um, formed an alliance with uh, Pekche, with, with one of the states um, that were um, on the Korean uh, peninsula, and uh, became embroiled uh, in a war uh, with uh, another state, Shilla. And Shilla won out in the end, um, which led to uh, quite some worries um, on the Japanese, well, in Japan, um, that basically Shilla, that had itself formed an alliance with Tang China, that they might come and invade um, Japan. And of course, this image was then uh, resurfaced um, with the Mongol invasions um, that also um, used Korean ships and also um, basically um, forced Koreans to fight for them. So here we basically have this idea that um, that Korea is uh, can either attack um, Japan directly or is so weak that they can be um, invaded by some other force and then uh, serve as a foothold to attack Japan. And then a third, a third very important um, pre-modern um, image was um, that Korea um, is basically a vassal state of Japan, um, but they are ungrateful and do not really um, bring the tribute they promised. Uh, of course, this is connected to this legend of Chingu Kogo. Uh, so according to the le legend, uh, Chingu Kogo had invaded um, all of the Korean kingdoms and they had sworn to bring tribute from then on. Um, but apparently, um, this had never happened in historical Japan. So uh, Japanese elites uh, started to question why that was. And the the most face-saving answer for, for um, Japanese elites was, yeah, the, the Koreans just don't keep to their promises. Um, and of course, this was reactivated in, also in the modern period um, to um, basically see this as a historical precedent of Japanese rule over Korea. And then in the, what was a new idea that came in the, in the modern period was that um, Korea became a part of uh, Japan's Orient, you could say. So um, they were seen as not civilized um, compared to the civilized West. So Japan uh, tried to become a part of the civilized West and um, basically leave Japan, uh, leave, leave Asia. And Korea was one of the countries that was used to, to visualize this kind of backward Asia. Um, so this is basically where a real rupture occurs. So these uh, three pre-modern images um, I have been uh, talking about are reoccur again and again. Um, but the first one, that, that Korea is a country of, of advanced civilization, was basically turned on its head in the modern period. So this really changed in the modern period. Yes, and of course, um, Susano also played a role in, in visualizing these these images, um, especially of of, um, Jap of Korea being backward or also being immature, not able to to rule themselves, um, impulsive, childish. Um, yeah, so that's how it connects uh, to the figure of Susano. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so especially because you see how sort of different um, modern sort of interpretation of, of these images. Um, they're, they're not based on nothing, I guess, right? Just because in, you know, in the pre-modern times, you have sort of text and you have um, sort of images of Korea um, that they were sort of basing on. And then um, Susano sort of, <laughs> I guess, um, enters the, the, the sort of the story there. And then you have, you know, um, sort of this, this, this new... Um, construction in the modern times. Um, very interesting. Uh, okay, so speaking of sort of Susanoo, in chapter two, um, you sort of explore different narratives um, of Susanoo in Nihon Shoki, in Kojiki, um, and in Izumo Fudoki. Um, you've we've been talking about Susanoo for a lot um, throughout sort of this this podcast, um, but maybe you can sort of dig deeper into sort of this deity um, and sort of um, tell us how different he's portrayed in sort of these different texts and these three texts particularly. 
-hmm. Great. Um, so Susanoo is well basically the one of the of the major new um, findings of, of mythological or, or of studies of, of Japanese myths in the well last few decades um, has been to no longer try to reconstruct uh, basically an original uh, Japanese mythology. So um, for a long time, um, scholars have, have tried to basically use the most of all the Kochiki and the Nihonshoki um, in order to reconstruct some oral tradition um, that is somehow reflected um, or they claimed is reflected um, in those two chronicles. And one newer approach um, that is uh, very much linked um, to uh, the uh, scholar um, Konoshi Takamitsu um, is to regard each of these chronicles as an independent literary work um, and to very clearly separate them. And uh, this um, approach has shown that there are indeed very important differences also between the Kochiki and the Nihonshoki, even though both of them are very closely connected to the imperial court and definitely share a common goal of justifying imperial rule. But at the same time, they do this um, in very different ways. Um, the most obvious one is that in the Kochiki, you have uh, basically one mythological plot um, that is coherent in itself. Whereas in the Nihonshoki, um, you have one main narrative and then a lot of, of variants uh, to these narratives um, that are often um, mutually contradictory. And especially for the for this topic of um, Susanoo O's connection to um, Korea, uh, this is a very important point because uh, this connection does not at all appear in the Kochiki, and it also doesn't appear in the main narrative of the Nihonshoki, um, but it only appears in, in very isolated variants um, within the Nihonshoki um, that are not at all um, connected to the overall plot. Um, and this to, to also um, bring back this, this idea of cultural memory again, um, this shows you that, uh, well, how selective all of this is. So in the, in the colonial period or also in, in other periods when, um, the, when Susanoo's connection to Korea um, was addressed, then this very isolated um, variant, uh, which uh, is normally not well known, um, really takes center stage. And um, so just to give a very, very um, rough outline of the, of the plot about Susanoo in the Kochiki and also in the main narrative of the Nihonshoki, he's basically uh, born uh, from the primordial father, Isanagi, um, as the little brother of uh, the sun goddess Amaterasu and the uh, moon god Tsukuyomi. And each of these children um, is assigned to rule over one um, sphere of the mythical cosmos. Um, according to the variants, uh, these spheres differ somewhat. Um, but what is always the same is that Susanoo does not um, follow um, this, this task. So he does not rule, um, but just um, screams and, and, and basically um, yeah, uh, screams and cries, uh, which leads to chaos in his realm and to many people dying. And then he's banished uh, by his father Isanagi and goes up to um, Amaterasu's realm, uh, the plane of high heaven, um, saying that he wants to say farewell to her. And there he basically commits um, all of these outrages. So he destroys her rice paddies. He, um, he defecates in her in the most sacred precinct um, 
where she's basically ritually costing the new rice. Um, and in the end, he basically, um, all of these uh, outrages result in Amaterasu hiding away in a rock cave, um, which deprives all of the world from sunlight and more chaos erupts um, until the other deities find a way to lure Amaterasu out again. And then Susanoo is banished again and descends from the plane of high heaven in, in Isomo, so the present-day um, Shimane prefecture, where he turns into something of a local hero. So here he fights an eight-headed dragon and, and saves uh, uh, a maiden uh, f uh, who is supposed to be sacrificed um, to it. And then in the Kochiki, only in the Kochiki here, he appears again as the ruler of, of the land of roots, which is one of the, of the other worlds. Um, and that's basically um, the whole plot. And the, the one variant that most strongly connects him to Korea is that um, after being banished from uh, the plane of high heaven, he does not descend to Isamo directly, but first goes to Shilla, to the Korean kingdom of Shilla, um, stays there for a while, and then um, builds a boat and crosses over to Isamo. And this was then in the, in the colonial period used to say that um, Susan O is actually the founder of, of, of Korea. And that means that um, Japanese and Koreans are one ethnic group. Um, and then we have this uh, third um, source that also comes from the, from the early 8th century, the Isumo Fudoki. Um, this was um not comp this was also compiled in response to an imperial order um, but not at the imperial court itself but all of the provinces um, had to submit um, basically topographies so they had to uh, write about the quality of the land uh, what kind of crops uh, were grown there what kind of products could be produced and also um, the the names of all the towns and and villages um, and also explain these names and uh, record the basically all of the stories of the old people and um, one of the so they were called the fudoki and one of the few that are still extant is the isumo fudoki and interestingly, um, here Susanoo also appears, but he's very different. So he's not uh, a very important uh, figure here. And he's only mentioned basically as the, as the father of, of other deities. Um, so he does not, even his, his fight with the, with the eight-headed dragon is, is not even mentioned here. Um, so again, we have a, a very, very different image of Susanoo, uh, which... Um, has um, caused some scholars to question uh, whether um, Susanoo is actually uh, really a deity from, from Isumo, because he's very, very um, strongly connected to Isumo in the imperial um, chronicles, but not so much in the Fudoki. Um, so what this... What is interesting about this is that, um, of course, this uh, Susanoo from the Isumo Fudoki did not play a role at all in modern discourses. Um, but that, yes, so um, as I said, you, you need something to build on. So you cannot um, invent uh, traditions from scratch, um, but you're rather free of, of choosing what you want to use um, if, it, if there is kind of a precedent. And in the case of Susanoo, this was clearly the Nihon Shoki, which was most useful in this regard. Okay, yeah, interesting. Um, different occasions from different texts, and um, for those who um, are sort of going to pick up the book, you'll sort of learn that they are sort of used in, in various different ways as well. Um, and you actually, you know, you look at sort of medieval sort of reinterpretations of Susanoo as well. But why don't we go straight to um, the second part and sort of um, just jump straight into the uh, modern sort of period. Um, so this is chapter six. Um, and and here, um, what I find really interesting is sort of this this theory of, of common ancestry, which you've also mentioned um, earlier. 
um, because that seems to be one of the key sort of um, points that um, uh, scholars and sort of um, uh, individuals sort of part of the Japanese government um, in terms of applying sort of Susanoo and its sort of his relationship to Korea. Um, can you maybe tell us more about sort of this this theory? Um, who were some of the main proponents of the theory, and and maybe how influential was this during that time? Mm -hmm. This is a very good question. So first, um, it is very important to um, notice that this theory was not so much a political um, idea in the beginning. So who the, the first um, people who came up with this idea of um, basically this well, ancient unity or shared ancestry of, of um, Japanese and Koreans um, were actually the, the first generation of professors at the um, Department of Japanese History at the, the Imperial University of Tokyo. So this was in um, 1890, uh, the first um, the first publications came out that um, were very heavily um, based on interpretations of uh, the ancient Japanese myths, especially of those um, isolated um, variants. And they did not really um, draw any political conclusions from from this. So they just um, more or less criticized um, the Kokugaku scholars like Motori Norinaga and said um, they, well, they have got it all wrong. In, in reality, there's a very close cultural um, connection to Korea. And at the time, uh, this view was not influential at all, and it was heavily criticized. And um, in the end, it was actually one of the reasons uh, why this whole um, department of, of uh, Japanese history was closed down um, after some years, and all three professors uh, who were working there uh, lost their jobs. And it was only then in, there were some some other um, proponents um, in afterward, uh, but the theory only became really influential um, in 1910, when um, the, the annexation of uh, Korea to Japan was basically um, made official. And by then, it was not so much as a scholarly theory, but much more as a, as a mass media phenomenon. So um, a lot of anthropologists or uh, historians or linguists um, published not only in scholarly journals, but also in newspapers and in um, magazines that were targeted at, at a much broader audience. Um, and basically brought forth this idea that um, Japanese and Koreans belong together because they had been, um, well, they can be traced to a common root. And in all of these, um, all of these articles, um, the myths played a, a very important role um, because many of them basically um, interpreted those myths as true historical accounts. So the deities that appeared in those myths were for them um, historical personages, kings or, or rulers or um, village heads. Um, and then this uh, theory again quieted down rather, rather soon. And it was not very influential in um, among Korean subjects. So um, it, it never got uh, a lot of traction on the on the Korean peninsula. This changed to a certain extent in, in 1919, um, which is the year when there was a huge um, anti-colonial uprising in, uh, in the peninsula. And after that, the colonial authorities um, basically reformed their um, their policies um, on the peninsula and they uh, introduced something called the cultural rule. So they tried to make 
the colonial rule appear much more civilian and not so much. Uh, so the role of the military uh, was uh, basically um, downgraded uh, to a certain extent. And then again, uh, this um, idea of, of a close relationship, of a close cultural and ethnical relationship of uh, Japanese and Koreans uh, was taken up again and also influenced um, Shinto policies. Um, and for the first time, it was also embraced by the um, government general in, in Japan. Um, but still, um, the attitude of um, politicians uh, was always somewhat ambivalent. Um, on the other hand, Shinto priests um, in Japan, especially in Japan, not so much in Korea, um, started to um, really support this idea and also support the idea of um, enshrining um, Susanoo in Shinto shrines, but also enshrining um, Korean deities in Shinto shrines. And one um, basically theory that was used to, to back this up was that Susanoo was in reality identical with Tangun, uh, with uh, basically the mythical founder of the, of the oldest uh, Korean state. Um, so here, yeah, it's, it's very interesting that basically this um, medieval um, concept of identifying uh, foreign deities with um, native deities that had been completely abolished in the modern period re-emerged in a, in a very new guise. Um, yeah, so that's what for me makes this, um, especially the colonial um, interpretations, um, very interesting. So it, it started as a, as a purely academic um, theory that was very much opposed to the mainstream. And then the political ut utility was basically just discovered later on, uh, which also uh, shows you that, uh, you know, in, in cultural memory studies or also the invention of tradition, um, the intention of the of the writers um, is not always that important. So it doesn't always work out the way they want to. Yeah, um, I think I think sort of. This this part is especially um, what's really interesting about this book and wh why I think it's really relevant too, because even now we still see sort of similar processes, right, of like incorporating certain parts, certain ideas from myths and then actually sort of, well, believing maybe is not the right term, but actually sort of discussing that as real facts, right? I mean, just even the, how sort of the Japanese government sort of counts the order of succession, as you know, is still based on the myths. Um, it's still a very sort of relevant thing, even in sort of contemporary Japan. Um, yeah, really interesting. Um, there's still so much more to discuss, but I'm afraid we've uh, taken way too much of your time. Um, before we say goodbye, though, um, there is one final question. Um, can you maybe tell um, us what projects you're currently working at? Sure. So um, I've basically just um, started work on a new project that is very much um, connected to the emergence of uh, modern or the, the modern discipline of ethnology in Japan. Um, and this focuses um, on a scholar called Okamasao, who is very interesting because he bridges um, Japanese traditions very much with um, new Western um, ideas. Uh, but this did not happen in the Meiji period, um, as is often the case, but actually in the Showa period. So he first um, was a close acquaintance of uh, Yanagi Takunio and also published a, a journal together with him. And then in the 1930s, um, he uh, went to Vienna and there studied um, basically the um, theory of ethnology that was then very much prevalent in the German-speaking countries, at least, um, which had a very strong emphasis on cultural migrations and was opposed to the idea of, of evolution and of, of basically, um, you know, separate um, processes in different countries. But it was for, for this... Um, 
for the German-speaking um, countries, there was basically this idea that only very few geniuses will ever have um, new ideas and can come up with uh, innovations and everything else is just um, migrations um, and one culture will will learn everything from from other cultures um, and well Okamasao learned this uh, theory uh, in Vienna and then wrote a very long book which also which he um, handed in as a PhD thesis in Vienna uh, which tried to apply uh, this idea um, to Japanese ethnogenesis and this uh, theory of ethnogenesis um, remained very influential he never um, really published this in pre-war Japan um, because it was very much opposed to the mainstream of, of Japanese scholarship. For instance, it uh, claimed that the Tenno um, dynasty came at a very late uh, point uh, into, into the Japanese islands and was not connected to Japan at all, but was basically came over from the continent. And this was later turned into this um, idea that um, a horse riding uh, people from the from the Korean Peninsula had basically invaded Japan in, uh, in the ancient period and uh, built the, this di Tenno dynasty. Um, so that's what I'm working on. And I'm especially interested in how Okamasao combines um, ideas taken from Japanese folklore studies um, with um, ideas um, that he encountered in Europe and how this um, hybrid process uh, brought forth something very new because also one of the major differences between Okamasao and European um, scholars of um, ethnology is that Okamasao applies these theories to his own culture instead of some some very distant um, often um, non-literate society. So here it, I think it's also very interesting to, to look at this from a post-colonial perspective and what this actually means. So yeah, that's my new project. Yeah, that sounds like another um, fascinating project. Um, well, if you are interested in learning more about Susanao and sort of his relationship with Korea, please do check out um, David's book. Uh, thank you for listening, and I'll see you in another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies. Bye-bye.